what if we could scale that? What if we could take all these people who want to help others and really start to scale it and help people, especially younger in their careers, get this kind of confidence and this kind of traction? All right, we're here today with Kelly Mooney. Kelly Mooney is a CEO, Chief Experience Officer, and Strategic Advisor recognized for leading organizations in customer insight and digital experience. Named to Advertising Age's A-List in Wall Street Journal's Best Places to Work, she understands how to help companies create business value at the intersection of customer centricity, technology, and innovation. In 2016, Ms. Mooney and her business partners sold their agency to IBM to become part of IBM IX, the world's second largest digital consultancy, where she was named IBM's first chief experience officer. She's authored two books, The Open Brand, Foreseeing the Impact of Social Media on Brand Building, and The Ten Demandments, Expressing the Voice of the Internet-Enabled Consumer, and co-authored The AI-Enhanced Customer Experience in the Modern Marketing Mandate, a perspective on how the CMO role is evolving. Kelly has been featured on CBS, CNN, NPR, and in the Wall Street Journal. Fast Company and People, and is during normal times a frequent speaker at industry events and prestigious colleges around the country. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Design with honors from The Ohio State University, and she recently founded a pre-leadership organization focused on helping young professional women excel at work and life. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Brad. It's really great to be here. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, we're not together in person as planned yeah. due to uh, you know what's going on in the world right now. But it's still nice to see you and, and be with you and uh, have an opportunity to hear your story. Yeah. Well, likewise, I, I wish I was there. I mean, I and I apologize if you, if there are listeners here, cars going by or my dog barking. We're in an Airbnb, so it could be it could be a little uh, noisy, but we'll we'll make the best of it. We will, we will. Uh, okay, so let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your childhood life. You know, as a little kid, and what what you remember about your parents and your upbringing. Sure, sure. Well, probably most significant is that I was born the eighth of 10 children. And being from a huge family was not that unusual. In my hometown, I had numerous friends that had seven, eight, nine, even um, 15 kids in their family. So um, one of a big group uh, raised as a clan, really, when you're in a family that big. And Otherwise, life was fairly simple. It was very traditional. Both um, parents um, married and at my mom working, um, staying at home, taking care of the household and all of the kids. And so my life was what I would call kind of organized chaos. Uh, all kinds of people going in different directions, but she was very organized and very disciplined. And we were raised in a very sort of disciplined way. So um, it was pretty simple in that regard, played outside all the time, you know, walked home from school at five years old. It was just a very different uh, world back then, but a lot of freedom and simplicity, I guess I would say in a very rural town, a small town mm -hmm. called New Lexington, about five 5,000 people. So it was really um, a small community where everybody knew everybody. Mm. Yeah. And, and, uh, 10 kids. I mean, that's <laughs> maybe, maybe that was kind of commonplace, you know, in New Lexington, but just the idea of that um, as a parent uh, is overwhelming. I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe you could speak a little bit more. I know it was just kind of your normal, but like, what was that like? Yeah, it was super normal to me. And it wasn't until I got to college and I had roommates that had only one or two siblings. And I thought that was super strange. Um, so 
being part of a big family. I mean, it was chaotic. It was um, loud. Um, but at the same time, it was organized. Like I said, like we had breakfast every day at 7 a.m. And it was very organized. And we did the dishes and we did our chores. And, and then we went to school and we came home and we had, you know, one cookie and a glass of milk. And that was the snack. And there were no variations. And it was just very disciplined. That's a word I've used multiple times already, but that's how I think of it. So I think that was the only way my mother would would or could stay sane is to have a lot of rules. So there were there was just a lot of kind of, I don't know, guardrails to everything. And I think it wasn't until I, I really found myself in college and maybe halfway through college is I finally felt like I started to make some of my own decisions. So I think when you're raised in a group that large, the decisions are being made for the for the entity, you move mm-hmm. through space and time as a group and as a clan. And so it's hard to be parented as a single person and to really bring out the best in that one person, which is kind of what we try to do as parents today is you really try to understand your child and you try to help them discover their gifts and their talents and, and put them on a path that's unique to them or for them. And, but I think, you know, being part of 10, you don't really get to do that. So it took me a long time, I think, to find my voice, to find my own sense of independence, to find um, who am I separate from all of these people. I knew who I was as, as a family, but I wasn't sure who I was like separate from that. So that was, a, that was quite a journey, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and tell me, and I know this is a, a sensitive subject time, you know, that considering your father just passed, where was he kind of in that early childhood dynamic? What was he like? Tell me a little bit about his role in your life. Yeah, my dad was really quite remarkable. Um, I did just share with you earlier that he he died of COVID um, recently, uh, which is, you know, hard to process sometimes. And that's why I'm in town actually to honor his life and his legacy. And he was quite a remarkable, remarkable person. I actually think of him as, as one of the most um, um, amazing human beings that I personally know. And I feel so grateful that he was my father. He was kind and loving and supportive and engaged and involved. And I think more so because I was at the end of the family, I'm sure sometimes at the beginning, maybe, maybe, maybe not as much so for some of my older siblings, but definitely more so with the younger ones. But I, I learned so much from him. I, I wanted to be a business person because of him. He walked around with all these newspapers and magazines under his arm that I thought were so cool. And he had an office, I thought, with a big desk and piles of paper I thought was so cool. And I just wanted to be in business. He was in business that he took over from his father. And so he was an entrepreneur. He was an engineer. He was an amazing spouse. He was an amazing dad. And he he really helped me not to be afraid or intimidated. Like he would just say, they're just people. It's fine. Like, let's just like, you know, do your best and be who you are. And so he was awesome. And then when my mom got um, ill when I was young, he was her caretaker and was the most um, loving, sensitive, gentle man. Um, so I, I mean, I literally, I just feel so lucky to have had a father like that. Amazing. What a great thing to be able to say and to have experienced and and to have really influenced you and and shape your life. I mean, what a beautiful uh, thing to be able to have. Yeah. Yeah. I feel lucky in that way. I think he set the bar really high and all of us mm-hmm. aspire to reach mm-hmm. it. But I mean, he's, he's pretty unique in that regard. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit as you start to kind of move through, I mean, you mentioned being five and, and walking home from school and I had a similar experience, uh, maybe for different reasons, you know, but there was a sense of kind of independence that came at an early age. Um, Tell me a little bit about kind of who you were as you started to kind of move through school. What kinds of things were you interested in? And how did that kind of, you know, um, maybe what you were seeing from your parents or your siblings or those around you, you know, your dad's advice, let's, you know, they're just people, let's be, you know, be you. Who were you at that point? Yeah, good question. 
I think I was somebody who wanted to express her creativity, but I, I didn't really even know what that meant back then. And so I was in all things like 4-H and making my own clothes and um, you know growing gardens and doing those kinds of projects that come with 4-H. I was um, also part of the Girl Scouts and stayed in that for I think six years I was in that. So I was, you know, interested in earning all the badges, you know, like I think I had a sense of an achievement in an early stage of life. And I'm not quite sure if that's just, you know, part of trying to stand out when you're part of such a big group. I think you, I think maybe I was trying to find things that were uniquely for me. So I loved filling my Girl Scout sash with all the badges of accomplishment. But then I, I think creativity for me manifested in all kinds of things. I was always making something. I was always doing embroidery or some sort of craft or you might recall latch hook rugs way back when, when you had a little yarn and a hook. And so I made constant, you know, lots and lots of those. I made Christmas ornaments and pillows and blankets and all kinds of things, quilts. I was constantly making and and I didn't really know it back then, but I think it just was my deep yearning to be involved in design. And as I learned what design was, the older I got, I ended up going to industrial design school. And it was really my dad that helped me get on that path because he believed in me so much. I can remember actually coming home from high school one day and I was so excited and um, what actually started earlier in the day, but I had found this book, you know, back then, of course, there's no internet. So we'd just go to the guidance counselor's office and just look at all the college books, you know, all these colleges and all these majors. And, I, you know, my, my older siblings at that point, you know, had gone into nursing or dental hygiene. And so some of the more expected kind of uh, college degrees, and I knew I wanted to do something really different. And I found this book that was about industrial design at Ohio State. And I showed it to my guidance counselor and he was like, yeah, you don't, you can't qualify. You don't have a portfolio. We're not, our school's not in, set up to help you get into a school like that. And I was like, I thought the whole purpose of a guidance counselor was to provide guidance <laughs> and counseling and maybe emotional support and encouragement. And I got home and I told my dad, my mom and my dad this, and my dad was just outraged that that, that was the response. And so he actually called the dean at Ohio State University and said, I have this young um, daughter who's interested in your program. Would you be willing to do an interview? And so I went up there and met them and and um, and the dean of the school said, "Well, you really need to take drafting and take more art, and you know, do these other things, and then maybe you can get into the program." But it was really—I mean, my dad like stopped what he was doing. He was running a company. He had all these kids, and he drove me to Columbus to explore the school, and that really changed my life. And that's the school I, I went through to industrial design, and ended up working as a designer for about ten years. Um, after I graduated. But, so it, it's, it's amazing. You know, you have this support from your father uh, who was a business person, right? And, and, you know, a lot of business men really um, have a hard time. I mean, historically, generationally, at least, you know, that's been kind of my experience and maybe this is a, a stereotype, but, but I think it's a stereotype for a reason. A lot of men in business, especially maybe in more rural parts of the country, aren't as quick to uh, support creativity mm -hmm. or you know artistic expression. Um, and and so I'm wondering, like when you were a kid, you know, was that something that was around you at all? Was there anybody else in the family, or was it just you and your parents? really wanted to honor who you were? You know, I'm sure my siblings all had some form of creativity going on in their lives, but it wasn't the focus for them. And I just remember being in second grade and pushing the furniture around in the house and realizing it could be organized differently to create a different flow or a better experience. And, and I realized like my mom actually let me do that, even though that created more chaos in an already chaotic household. So I think they must've just seen that that was what I was drawn to. I do feel really lucky that I felt, I felt supported and encouraged and, um, and maybe, maybe they did um, 
get more enlightened or maybe have more time or more patience as they worked down. I mean, the thing is by having so many kids, you sort of, you get better <laughs> over oh, you the do. years. You I, get I, more I, practice. Yeah. I mean, I sure. find it in my own self, you know, so. No um, question. Yeah. 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 I have three and I feel like my youngest is getting the the best of me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know uh, that, Look, I mean, you know, if you're if you're doing it right, why wouldn't you not be getting better? You know, as as you do it more, um, you know, especially you if you're working confidence. at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I think for me, you know, my parenting is a direct reflection of the my own work, right? So the you know, the better I get as a human being, then the better mm-hmm. I can show up in a lot of places and. Sometimes, you know, that just takes experience. Um, okay, so you you end up in a program. I mean, I think today that's a little bit more commonplace, you know, industrial design. People are, I mean, look, you know, CCAD and other colleges across the country are, are creating whole uh, environments, ecosystems, oh, not sure. just majors. What wasn't quite as common then, right? I mean, that wasn't a path that was like seen by all your peers or <laughs> no. super, right? I um, didn't know a single yeah. person. I never heard of industrial design. I didn't know a single person in it. I didn't know a single woman in business. And so, um, and I think at the time, it's very different now. I mean, I've served on the board at CCAD for nine years, um, a, a while back. And, um, but I think, I think design is just different now because when I enrolled in design, I remember my mother being worried that, that an artist, she kept calling it artist, uh, an artist would, would starve and would not be able to make a living. And that starving artist sort of idea was, I think, pretty um, common. Uh, at least that was an expectation or, or sort of a misperception. Perception, maybe, is what I would say. Um, misconception. Not sure what word I'm looking for there, but <laughs> I think that was what she was worried about. But I was never worried about that. I was never mm-hmm. thinking about if I'll make money or I won't make enough money. I just was really focused on doing what I thought was a cool career that was intellectually challenging, that was creatively invigorating. And was something that was different that I didn't know anybody else doing, and so that's that drew me to it. All those things, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm curious, and and maybe we're fast forwarding a little bit, but I, I'm curious about kind of the the art part, right? This kind of piece that has you just wanting to create. You know, I, and yeah. I'm maybe putting words in your mouth, but that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Like you weren't really focused on anything, but maybe just this like feeling inside of you that you wanted to be creating something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really to me, that is art creation, you know, and I think we sometimes can put creativity in a, in a fine art box, you know, like your mother was doing. It's, it's not uncommon for people to see creativity as a fine art, but really Mm -hmm. I believe, you know, creativity is is everything that we do, you know, our lives, our thoughts, our relationships. Exactly. And certainly, you know, business is a creation, uh, all of it, you know? And so, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, kind of what the influence maybe of your, your father, your parents, society kind of had you in putting the art and the business together mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, just the art. And not that that's good or bad. I just am curious, you know, kind of how you see it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting to think about. I'm not sure if I know exactly, but I I know once I got to industrial design school, I actually wasn't very good at the art part. I didn't have the hand skills that a lot of other people who were in the program, I was uh, you know, 18, 19 years old. And many of the students were 30 because they went off and had a career and then learned about industrial design and then came back and 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 were there to get another degree. And so they were much 
better at the hand skills. So I actually realized in what I was learning in design school was problem solving. I was learning to observe behavior. I was learning to look for opportunities for something to be better. And so I end up learning how to think in a very structured way to learn how to think. And so once I got into the design world, what I realized that I was able to help articulate ideas that maybe a creative person or designer or um, an engineer or somebody had imagined and then trying to communicate it to the client in a way that they could understand. I realized actually I was a pretty good bridge at that. It took me a while to figure out. And I really enjoyed being in that kind of role and helping bridge people who might not otherwise understand each other. And I think it really took me a while until I realized like the commercial part of the business I really enjoyed. And I, I began to learn how to write a proposal. I began to learn how the business made money or lost money. Um, what was a good client and what wasn't a good client and how to evaluate that. So as I learned more and more about that, I liked the commercial side of it. So, so kind of those things together is really what like what mattered to me and why I sort of stayed in in the space in some way, shape or form for my whole career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yet I would imagine this kind of appreciation and, and the experience you had in being an artist, even if it was, you know, little, you know, kind of childhood projects has you able to really be that bridge you know, the, the, I, I think, and my, my experience, it certainly helps, is somebody who relates to the art can be way more successful in the business because the, you actually get it. You care about the people that have to do the creation. You care, care about the finished product. Um, you care about the end user. You have some sensibility to the art itself. Yeah, even very if much. You, are you know getting your joy or find your skill to be more on the business side of it that kind of bridge as you described it i think is really powerful yeah i'd like to think so i mean i love all of those things you described i love the final product i love being involved in something that's innovative and excellent i love pushing boundaries i love when teams do the most remarkable and they've pushed themselves like all of that brought me great um, satisfaction. I loved thinking about the consumer side of things and what did people need and how are we going to make them feel and how can we make their lives better? All that was um, intrinsically motivating to me. Um, and the funny thing is like the business side, I never ended up getting a business degree or an MBA. So it was all learned on the job and I'm you know being supported by amazing people who knew a lot more about finance than I ever will. But I, I had to learn it um, uh, mm-hmm. over time, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I also think is just an important point to highlight. I try to do this with my kids too that um, are in college and trying to figure out you know, what they want to study and how that's going to translate into a job. The, the, the fact that you can really learn it all on the job and it's not that that's easy. It takes years. It takes you know maybe some luck, the right the right places, people, uh, mentors. I mean, it takes a lot, but you can learn it sometimes, even um, in a way that's that's even more effective uh, on the job. <laughs> you don't have yeah, to have studied it to go do it. Of course. Yeah, totally true. And I think a a degree of persistence, all the things you just mentioned, you know, luck, mentors, hard work, you know, opportunity just coming and or being able to see opportunity when it's knocking you like in the face or slapping you in the face. But I would say all with all of that persistence and being willing to keep trying or keep plugging plugging on or um, not giving up and those kind of things. That's what really matters when I look back at the end of the day, I'm kind of most proud of is just sort of continuing to like push through when things were challenging or difficult or whatever. Okay. So let's back up a little and talk. You mentioned you got your degree, you went into a position, if I heard you correctly, that you were in the same company for a decade. Is that what you said? 
Yeah, about nine and a half years. I worked mm-hmm. for a firm in town called Richardson Smith, which is, you know, ultimately became Fitch over time. But Dean Richardson and Dave Smith were quite uh, innovative product designers, entrepreneurs who had an incredible firm in town that really not a lot of people knew about um, locally, but I was able to get an internship there and that internship turned into a full-time position. And I, I literally think I just got so lucky in getting the most amazing first job because I was working with incredibly talented designers, writers, engineers, project um, product designers, and a whole assortment of like psychologists and all working in an in an collaborative integrated way in design, which in the eighties was <laughs> really unusual. And I had a mentor who. Um, who I actually just saw recently in California, who gave me my first job and just basically taught me everything. And I I feel so lucky because I don't know that everybody starts their first job and gets exposed to so many disciplines and gets a ton of responsibility and then gets mentored um, as a part of the experience. So I, I just was super lucky and look back on that with a lot of gratitude. Oh, it's incredible. I don't think that's very common. You know, most first jobs by nature, entry level, and um, usually, you know, things that in my experience, you know, you don't really like, you know, my, my first 15 years of my career was in learning what I didn't want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, it took me that long be- to find a job or to create a job that I actually liked, um, which I think is sadly more common than not. Um, you, I think, you know, at least knew even, you know, from an early age and, and through college, what you wanted to do. It sounds mm-hmm. like, like you, you understood the field. So being in an environment uh, that, that was something that you were passionate about had to be helpful in, you know, making that experience what it was. I, w- I would imagine, and I wonder if, if you've kind of thought about this, that that passion, that connection, that enthusiasm for the work, you know, maybe that made you somebody that was more um, teachable or that people wanted to coach or mentor. I think that might be true. I remember just feeling so pumped up to go to work every day. And I can remember talking to maybe siblings or friends in other jobs and other places who you know, felt like they were in a grind. And I never really felt that. I never, especially, you know, maybe for <laughs> the first 25 years, I think ultimately I started to get a little fatigued, but I, um, in the early days, I never did. I never had a day that I felt like that. I felt super inspired. And I do feel like I was very coachable. And so I got lots of feedback. I mean, I remember this one guy who, was so good at business development and would give this amazing pitch and this amazing presentation. And at the end of every meeting, I mean, think I'm like 23, 24 years old. And he was at the end of every meeting, he would say, okay, let's all gather and say, what about that meeting went well? Like, what do you guys think went well? What didn't go well? What could I personally have done better? What could you have personally done better? So I grew up thinking that was really normal to give that kind of feedback to somebody way higher up the chain and also to receive it. And I think that that, that was really great. I tried to bring that into my career as I evolved, but I also know sometimes it's hard for people to give and receive feedback. We're not always so great at it, but that, that was really valuable to me because I learned about all the nuances of you know what made for a good meeting, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's tremendous learning. And as you kind of moved out of that position, tell me a little bit about, you know, what happens next? What did you go towards? What's the next step? Well, the thing I liked in my first job is that it wasn't just design. I mean, it's a little daunting to think about it now, but they would they said, okay, write the proposal, deliver the proposal, do the work, pitch the work. And then you get a folder every month, literally a folder printed out pieces of paper and do all the billing. So I literally had to do the whole thing from beginning to end. And 
it's not, you know, at some point I was like, oh, I just want to do like the creative part, but they really made us learn the whole thing, which in hindsight was pretty remarkable. It was pretty remarkable that they would let me present to CEOs when I was, you know, 24, 25 years old. Um, so that really got me interested in really collaborating at the highest level. Now, of course, I was, you know, still low on the totem pole then, but over time, what I loved the most in my career is being able to interact with, um, our clients who were executives at a whole, you know, all assortment of brands, but really being a sounding board to them and being an advisor to them. I really, I, I really enjoy that. And I think it came from being exposed to it at such a young age. But really, I think my turning point in my life from a career standpoint is, gosh, or was I um, back in 1994. And I was listening to an interview with Jeff Bezos and he had just started Amazon and it was this kind of, you know, crazy idea that he was going to sell books on this thing called the internet. And, you know, it was not a very widely understood idea yet. And I just remember thinking, I want to be a part of that. And at the time I was designing physical stores. I remember I was working on a Reebok store that was going to be in Manhattan. And I was like, why am I designing physical stores when digital stores are going to be the future? And this was sort of in 94. Meanwhile, I had met Nancy Kramer and she was the CEO and founder of Resource Marketing at the time, which was the name of it at the time. And she had called my company, the design firm where I was, and said, Hey, we're working on a retail design, a project that involves retail design. It's not our expertise. We're more in the communication field. Could your firm partner with us? And I got assigned to that partnership mm. or collaboration. And so she and I hit it off really well. And it was right around that time when the Jeff Bezos interview happened. And she goes, well, why don't you come work with me? And I was like, well, what would I do? And she's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, do you have a job description? And she's like, we'll figure that out. And I was like, well, what would I work on? And she goes, well, there's the internet thing's going to be big. Can you figure that out? And so actually that was the leap I took to leave my job and go work with her and to figure out what it meant to help to get a business on and on the internet and then to help clients um, to do that as a, mm. as a service, basically. It's funny. I don't know if you know this, but um, you've spent so much time with Nancy that your, your imitation of her is actually like quite striking, <laughs> you know, even her mannerisms. Uh, if anybody's watching, you know, uh, knows Nancy, you'll, you'll know what I mean. Um, well, what an exciting time. I mean, and, and I love the way that you described, um, you know, oh, this internet thing, it's going to be big. You know, Nancy says to you, you know, and, and, and your, you know, feeling of designing physical stores when you can see, you know, it, it, that is a conversation that's still ongoing, right? About physical versus digital. Of course. Obviously, obviously, you know. Jeff wins and e-commerce is what it is. And, you know, that's, it's not getting any smaller, but that was not like a clear thing to the rest of the world at that time. It was still like, what is this thing? There was a boom and a bust. Is it actually going to stick around? You know, and we see a lot of that happening now with crypto and blockchain and, you know, AI and whatever else, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I mean, I was in, not in my own business, but I was in the business world when that was happening. And, you know, I just remember that it wasn't so obvious to everybody where this was going. It seemed to be more clear to you and Nancy. And was that because you were in that world or you just kind of had that, that vision, your mind worked that way, you understood it? Tell me a little bit about like what that was like at that time. Yeah. And, you know, I might have misspoke by by Kramer or me thinking it was going to be big because I don't really think we knew that. But I, I don't know, just being drawn to something that seemed innovative, new, good for the world, at least at that time. But I was coming from a place where I literally was sharing one computer with eight or nine people. And we had an hour in the day where you could check your email. So we were all sharing one. So I don't think I had the um, the vision that this the internet was going to um, grow in the way that it did. 
but instinctively, I felt like there was something, a force field that was pulling me toward it. And I think what I've always tried to do is really trust my inner, gosh, my inner gut, you know, just like what feels like the right thing and trust in that. And every time I've done that, it's been the right thing. I can't say I've always done that, but when I do it, I know that it's the right thing. And so that's really what it what it was then. I mean, and I think Kramer was really distracted with the core business. Apple was a huge client. They had they were constantly calling with more and more projects and that required a certain amount of focus. And so um, she had said, hey, I've been in business for... I forget what it was at the time. She founded it in 81. So this was probably like 94 or 5. And she said, "You know, I've been in business all this time and I've never had a brochure. Can you kind of do that? So I created a brochure and that was like, well, can you create our website? And you know, nobody had created websites or not really much back then. It was so, super basic. And then it just kind of kept snowballing. And the real breakthrough for our business and uh, was getting to Victoria's Secret as a client. And it's one of the funniest stories when I look back is that Kramer and I initially had our meeting uh, out at Victoria's Secret with uh, Ed Razik specifically. And I remember we were talking to them about the internet and this is what's going on and this is what the Gap is doing and this is what this company is doing and you should really... You should be there too. And uh, then um, Les Wexford was kind of in the hallway or in the doorway of the meeting. And back then, I think that a lot of retailers had invested in some form of like um, cable show or some some format of um, retail on TV that didn't really materialize. And a lot of retailers lost a lot of money. And so I think they thought it was going to be another version of that. And so he <laughs> said to Les, like, hey, uh, these, these gals think we should put Victoria's Secret on the internet. <laughs> and he said, well, wouldn't it, be a lot easier and cheaper to just give everybody a t-shirt. And um, we were like, oh, wow. Okay. So um, so they actually asked us to leave. They actually asked us to not come back until we had more evidence um, that they would find compelling to make them interested in what we were proposing. And so ultimately, we did all the work and the research and tried to put the best case together. And then they said, oh, okay, actually, this is worth pursuing. And so then they did a nationwide search for agencies. And ultimately, we won that particular agency or nationwide search. But that was really the client of working with Victoria's Secret, I believe, it was back in around 96, 97 timeframe, probably 97 by the time it all sort of started. But um, that really changed the business in a lot of ways because then we were able to really get into the e-commerce uh, services business for other clients. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I mean, that becomes the business, right? Yeah, it, yeah. You know, it, it shifts into being a digital marketing agency, right? Exactly. And I mean, that was that the catalyst for it all? Oh, I think so. I mean, we were doing some basic websites for tech companies in Silicon Valley, but that was the big client and Kramer got on in USA Today and on numerous, you know, shows and stuff for that sort of notoriety that the the business um, was participating in. And, And so, yeah, I think that really changed the course of the business. And then we really were kind of all digital for quite some time and then went full circle towards the uh, the end of at least my time there becoming a more integrated marketing company because clients said, okay, yes, digital is important, but I want you to think about all of the branding or all of the marketing and how all of the digital integrates with that. So we ended up actually going kind of full circle back to a much more integrated type of company. And, and Kelly, you end up spending your career, the rest of your career, under the resource umbrella. I know mm-hmm. it goes through a few different mergers and acquisitions and ultimately sells to IBM. But you end up spending the rest of your career there, which is how many years in total? Well, it's almost 25 because I started as a freelancer for a year mm-hmm. and a half or so. And then I became... Um, when I first started, I worked four days a week because I wanted to start my family. So for the first few years, I was more on a part-time. But then ultimately, I became a head of a department and then the president of the business and then the CEO uh, in 2011. And then when we sold it into IBM, I became the chief experience officer for the North American group that we were a part of. So almost, I think it was 24 and a half uh, at the end of the day, but yeah. And maybe you can just kind of highlight or summarize, and I know that's difficult to do for 25 years, but, but you know, tell me, 
tell me kind of at the end of the day, how, how, how would you summarize that experience? Oh, geez. I, I mean, it was incredible to be a part of an industry that's growing and changing, which is what I advise all the young people I mentor today, be in an industry that's growing because it's so rewarding. It's so exciting. You don't worry about you know all the things that you do when an industry or a business is declining. I, I mean, I feel like I was so lucky to be working with so many talented people. Like that was really energizing. And we had some people who would leave the company and then work somewhere else and then come back and say they missed like how smart and how talented every everybody was. And so I loved that part of it, being in collaborative sessions and coming up with ideas that hadn't been thought of before. So that was really rewarding. And then I had the opportunity to write um, two books uh, along with another colleague in the company um, for each of those. And then to share that thought leadership and that intelligence into national forums and events and conferences and magazines and things. And that was really rewarding. And because I love doing it because I love sharing kind of a perspective of where I thought the world was going. But I also liked that it actually elevated the firm and, and brought more clients to the company. So that was super rewarding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having being in partnership with Kramer was also amazing. It was, you know, uh, a unique partnership that she had you know, owned the company all by herself for many, many years. And so it wasn't until the bubble burst in the 2001 timeframe that ultimately I became her business partner and helped her kind of rebuild and grow the company again after the, after the challenging 2001 era. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and tell me uh, a little bit about, you know, in the 25 years and you just, you know, alluded to a pretty, a big, uh, difficult, challenging time. Tell me a little bit about kind of the down times, the hard times, you know, um, what kind of uh, you remember that really helped you get through those times? Because, you know, I I know just from being in Columbus and and from being friends with Nancy and and others that have um, been a part of that ride, there were a lot of real scary times. Yeah, you know that the the end outcome is a phenomenal success story, but it wasn't a straight line. No, you know I think like any business, they you go through hard times and you get better as a result of it. And you know the first hard time I recall when I was still, um, in, I was not an executive in the business, but when Apple basically. Um, had Steve Jobs come back into the business and then he decided he didn't need any agencies. And so at that time, it was a huge part of our business. I mean, it might've been like 70% of our business. And so to have that go away overnight and then how to hustle to replace that business was really challenging and scary. And then when the bubble burst in 2001, the revenues dropped so significantly. A lot of the clients were either going out of business or their businesses were shrinking. So therefore they didn't need our business or our services. And so our business shrunk quite dramatically. And it was a really scary time. A lot of businesses that were like ours, our competitors went out of business or sold or or just, you know, never recovered. And so we were able to get through that. I mean, it's, you know, it's focused. There were hard stuff. We had to let people go, which was brutal. It was emotionally challenging um, in ways that I had never experienced. And even Kramer hadn't experienced in the business. Um, That was the first time in the 2001 timeframe that she had ever done any sort of layoff. So super hard stuff. And then, you know, again, in the 2008 time with the financial uh, recession that was going on and all the impact in the financial markets had a huge impact on our business and the revenues declined again. So there was a lot of stuff like that and um, that just made us get smarter, made us be more deliberate in our decision-making, surrounding ourselves with just really smart, good advisors. I mean, we ultimately did an acquisition that was super bumpy in terms of the integration. And so um, learning how to how to deal with that when you have one vision and thinking it's going to be amazing and turns out to you know be more challenging than you could ever imagine and um, so we had lots of things that we struggled through 
Yeah. So it, it makes you a better business in the end, but not during it. During it, it's pretty rough. And, and I know you today are doing a lot of mentoring and advising and board work, and, and I want to get to that. But I'm curious, the experience of, of being now a partner in a business, um, somebody that is in senior leadership and has been for a long time, um, being a woman in that role um, during those years, and, and at the same time, balancing being a parent, a mother, mm-hmm. you know, talk a little bit about what was it like to be a woman in leadership during that time? And also, what was it like doing that and also being a mother, uh, which I know is something that, that all parents, but, you know, maybe more so um, women and mothers historically have struggled with. Yeah. You know, answering the question what it's like to be a woman, it's the only thing I know. So it's hard to really, um, it's hard to really say, I I don't have any remarkable story about, um, you know, I don't know. This is a funny topic because right now I'm focused on helping young professional women get the skills they need for career and life momentum. And so when I, part of the reason I want to do it is because I'm, I'm upset and I'm angry that we still haven't closed the pay gap. We still haven't closed the opportunity gap and we certainly haven't closed the wealth gap. So all that stuff really makes me really angry. I don't think I was as cognizant of all of that, why I was building my career. As Mm -hmm. I have stepped away and reflected upon it and read lots of the research and been interacting with all kinds of people involved in gender equity and advocacy, I have really strong views about it. But I actually think at the time, and this sounds kind of pathetic and I'm not really proud of, is I was just so focused on doing the work and raising my family. And I was so overwhelmed with how much there was to do. I didn't have time to process all of it. Mm -hmm. It was really hard time to have three, or sorry, I have two kids, but have two kids that are really little and be working. And the only thing I can tell you that really made it doable for me is choosing my husband, my life partner and making the best possible choice because He's so patient. He's so tolerant. He's an amazing cook. He loved being a caretaker with the kids. He still had his own career, but it wasn't always the most, it wasn't always the priority in our family. And I I had that as a support system. And if I didn't have that, I don't, I don't really know that I could have kept the wheels on the bus like a lot of people mm-hmm. are doing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and also um, really great to highlight that you know it's important in your case at least, and and other people make this work in all kinds of ways. But for you, it was really helpful to have uh, a partner at home that was really prioritizing the caretaking. Um, that had to give you some freedom, comfort, confidence to you know go out and and go to work every day. And and you know, the reason I asked the question is is the is because of the reason why you're uh, angry about it and trying to help others today is because I know this is a problem in the world. Now mm-hmm. the fact that you were able to just be head down and maybe. Um, you know, kind of even unaware of it being the problem that it was. I mean, it, it. I don't know what that says. If it says that, like, maybe it wasn't as bad for you as as it is for others, or maybe you were just so focused you ignored the noise. You know, I I just I wondered, and and again, part of the reason I asked is because I wondered, did you have any experiences that were clear to you that somebody didn't take you seriously or didn't give you opportunity oh, or you know right like stuff like that and was that tough did it did it kind of piss you off at the time or was it just like yeah that's just how it goes 
Well, I think a little bit, that's just how it was. And so part of me just learned how to ignore it or quite honestly, laugh it off or ignore it. Um, But yeah, like I was interrupted a lot when I was um, especially younger trying to present and having, you know, men just talk over me or take the idea that I was working on and then, you know, take it and present it. So that that was a little bit normal. And when I look back on it, I I didn't speak up and out as much as I wish I would have or could have or had the courage to do. Um, I had a a colleague who had the same exact job. I had a male colleague, same job, same level, same responsibility, making twice as much money as I was. I mean, I have a lot of those situations when I've reflected back on it. Like even in my hometown, my brother was the the pool manager of of the hometown swimming pool. And at night, like, I think it was like 19. And then when I was 19, I wanted to be the pool manager. But when we went to the city, I don't know what the bureaucrats are that make make those hires. And they said, well, you're a girl, you, you can't do it by yourself. So I had to do it with a friend. I had to get a friend to agree to do it with me. And then we had to split the salary. So while he at the same age was capable of running the pool, um, with roughly, you know, similar skill set, similar upbringing, um, we had to do the same job and then split the the salary. So those kinds of things, I think, I just kind of like rolled with it, like, oh, that's how it works. And not now, man. I'm yeah. like so not okay with any of it. And so I spend a lot of my time really coaching um, uh, young women on how to handle certain situations and how I might have handled them differently or with with more finesse than maybe I would have earlier mm-hmm. in my career. This is this is kind of the subject that I'm growing more and more passionate about, not necessarily the inequities, but just the idea that our lives are there for us to use. And when you get to a certain point in life where you have enough um, living under your belt and enough experience, you really can use it to help other people and and to give back and to kind of be a part of the change that you would like to see you know you maybe you would have liked to have had or maybe you didn't even see but now you know you know yeah. kind of what you're describing so maybe you could talk a little bit more about what you are doing today um other than living in Santa Barbara which <laughs> i am continually envious of and maybe we'll join you someday <laughs> but um tell me you know you mentioned kind of you know, how you concluded your time at, at IBM, then, then what, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of how you have made that transition out of IBM into your work today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I had an amazing mentor who told me when I was leaving the company that one of the most important things um, for me to do was to rediscover spontaneity. And I really had to internalize that because I don't, think I realized how routinized my life had become and how full and pre- you know pressed for time and maybe many moments I was more transactional than I really wanted to be because there was so much to get done because my real core is to build human relationships and have um, really strong connections. And so his advice to me was really valuable. And I really did that for many months. It's just to rediscover spontaneity and not say yes to anything. And so I did that for a while. And then I started saying yes to things that came to me that were board opportunities that where I thought I could provide value. Um, I had some teaching opportunities unfold for me where I met the head of the entrepreneurship programs at um, two universities in Southern California and started speaking in, in those programs and then connecting with those kids. I love that 20-something um, student and, and then mentoring them. And then that actually really, um, I had like a light bulb moment with one of the students and she had called me um, one time because she was at the top of her class and she got a job offer from Wall Street. And she said, I think it's a good offer. And I think it's a great offer, but I don't really know how to handle that with gratitude and class. And I don't, I don't really know how to ask for more. So I worked with her for about a half an hour, 45 minutes, and we role-played the entire thing, what you know could be all the possible scenarios and what her desired outcome was. And so the next day she called me and she said, I got 20% more salary, 20% more bonus, and 20% more PTO. 
And still, when I retell that story, it gives me chills because it made me just feel like, well, (laughs) that's incredible. What if we could scale that? What if we could take all these people who want to help others and really start to scale it and help people, especially younger in their careers, get this kind of confidence and this kind of traction. So that's what kind of got me on a new path. And I I wiggled and turned a little bit over the last year during COVID trying to think about the best way I wanted to manifest this. And and now I've launched a new company and I'm, I'm in my pilot mode right now and still building the core components. But it's a company I called Equipped and equipped women. And we are focused on equipping young professional women. And it's it's coaching, it's education, and it's community. And so one of the things I realized, I've done so much research with them over the year, past year, is they really are hungry for um, a professional community that's going to support them. And you can find that in all kinds of other ways the older you get in your career, but super challenging and hard. There's not much for young young women, especially. So that's what I'm focused on. I'm really excited working with some cool people and that love the mission and want to be a part of it and want to help see young women succeed with a little more ease maybe than than my generation and with a little more fulfillment earlier on and quite frankly, more financial success earlier on as well. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I again, you know, that just it makes perfect sense as I um kind of reflect back on what you've shared today. You know, your um childhood and you know the organization and the um, support that you had and the role modeling and mentorship early in your career and mm-hmm. and you know kind of then all the experiences that you had you know moving through the work world um, to be able to then take all of that and you're building a business around it which you love to do yeah. right and and it's not just any business you didn't just kind of hop out of IBM and say well you know why don't I you know, wait till a non-compete's over or, re, you know, rebuild a digital marketing firm in California. You, you're bundling this all in a way that can really add value to other people. And, and, and that, you know, doesn't mean that it has to be board work, nonprofit. It doesn't have to be volunteer or pay for service. Yeah. You can build an entire business around that, which could have real scalability and, and massive impact. I hope so. And I mean, it's really where my heart is. I I see what's possible with what I'm trying to do. And um, it's a little daunting sometimes because I was sure. so lucky to work with so many people who had IT expertise or project management expertise or technology expertise. And uh, and. Now, you know, trying to like do it from nothing is a totally different skill set. So for me, I went really helped grow a small business to become a medium business, but really I'm trying to go from, you know, zero to one at this point. And it's a, it's a different set of skills and challenges and it's pushing me a lot, but I, I love it so much. It is where my heart is. And I've had numerous opportunities to do things along the scale of what I was doing. And I just, I just couldn't be drawn to that. I, I somehow when I, when I finish something, I like to move to a fresh new thing, and so that's kind of how I, I view this as a fresh new thing. And one more question for me: um, You had mentioned early on trusting yourself, trusting your your gut. You're talking mm-hmm. now about, you know, what's in your heart. How how important is that as you coach other people to really attempt to kind of put all the obstacles aside all the you know what reasons why you can't do that how how important is it do you believe for people to really try to trust themselves and follow their hearts in their work i think it's a really easy thing to say and i think quite frankly it's easier for me to do now that i have mm-hmm. perspective and i have age and i have experience and i have trial and tribulations I don't like to give everybody the same advice. And I think if you're a young person starting out or you're early in your career, I think you have to first be responsible to your obligations. If you have school debt or you know whatever it is, you have to think about that. But I really think in your early part of your career is focusing on 
building competency. What can you become really good at? What skills can you learn so that you're valuable to a company, but you're also feeling valuable and valued because you're building skill sets. And the more skill sets you build, then the more opportunity you have. My only caveat is I think doing that with people who are visionary or who have a mission that you really believe in and who are building a culture that you want to be a part of. So I think that's harder to find all of those things, but I would try to find most of those things um, no matter what I was doing or who I was advising, trying to get most of those and recognizing that no job's perfect. And uh, sometimes we just have to be patient and work through the, the not fun stuff. Yeah, I think this is kind of a, a tricky subject. I, I don't really know exactly where I land on it because I've started to kind of have to dialogue with my own kids about this as they start to think about what they study. There's been, you know, kind of an emphasis on, well, um, I want to study X, but I also am going to need a job, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, people feel like I should graduate from college because without a degree, then what kind of job am I going to get? And there are some real realities to this. You know, you could apply the same kind of thinking around following your heart or passion. There, there are the realities of the student loans or the societal expectations or value around credentials. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of people who have made amazing lives for themselves and even become billionaires without college degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes I struggle a little in the like, well, start somewhere, figure it out over time. Life is long. You've got you know, a very long time to find uh, work that you're passionate about. That's that that's true. Um, and also, I think like the sooner you do that, the better. And the further you go down the path where you're not really energized by your work, it can get a lot harder to take that turn back. Yeah. And, you know, life can move kind of quick too. So, you know, I'm not sure, honestly, you know, kind of, I'm a big, in my life, every time I have trusted myself and followed my heart, which um, is not that often, um, because it's been really hard for me to do that. That is not how I was conditioned. That's not Mm -hmm. how I was, you know, raised and, and, you know, the, the environment I grew up in. Um, But that has been every time the best decision I've ever made. And so I want to tell people like you got to do that early on. <laughs> you know, do it sooner. But but there are those realities that make that really tough. Well, and I don't think it's a zero sum game or I don't think it has to be, you know, all or nothing and pursuing something you love. I don't think that means you have to, you know, um give up making any sort of money. I think it depends what kind of life do you want? What kind of lifestyle do you want? I mean, some people just want a couple side hustles and pay their bills. And like, that's the simplicity of that life is what they want. Now, like that's not for everybody. Some people really want to be driving their career and having a lot of choices and have more more, um, financial security. That that means a different set of choices. So, I mean, it's interesting because um, teaching at the college level, there's this huge push to be an entrepreneur. And I take big issue with that, which is kind of the counter um, attitude that that the university wasn't really expecting. So the guy that I co-teach with, his name is um, Paul Orkula. He founded Kinko's and he runs the program. And He's always telling them, you should be an entrepreneur at 20 years old. You should give up everything you have to just be an entrepreneur. And I said, I don't agree. I think that's one perspective. And that's one path for a certain kind of person who might have a burning idea and a lot of drive. That's a path. But that's not for everybody. I mean, I think another path is go work with really smart, capable people who are going to imbue a lot of knowledge and skills that you would never otherwise get access to. And then maybe 10 years from now, you're going to feel like inspired and empowered with a big idea to go do your own thing. So I don't know. I think it's not right for us to give um, advice. It's just one path. I think there's many paths and it depends on your ambition and your drive and what you want for yourself. 
And then those choices are different as a result of, of that combination of things. Yeah, I, I think that's a good answer. Um, certainly, you know, there's not one path for everybody. In fact, Gino Wickman, who's a friend of mine, uh, who wrote the book Traction, um, yeah, he I'm founded EOS. Yeah, so Gino's newest project is called Leap. And it's a book and a curriculum that's really aimed mostly at young people, but anybody who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur. And the very first part of it really tries to talk people out of it. That, you know, you know, it can be kind of glamorized and, you know, people can kind of say, you know, you should do it because it was amazing for them. And, and I want to do that, but, you know, that it's not for everybody. Totally. Um, and I think yeah. there's this misunderstood notion that entrepreneurs are in their 20s. And I think the data shows now the average age of an entrepreneur is like 45 or something like yeah. that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually think a little life experience is more valuable before plunging into starting a new company. But that's just my personal perspective. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your perspective and all that you have shared with us today and taking the time, especially while you're in town at a difficult time. So thank yeah. you. Um, any final thoughts? Well, <laughs> thank you for all the things that you're doing in this town to make it better. And the leaps that you're making personally, I find inspiring. And I'm just glad to be able to call you a friend. So thank you, Brett. Well, thank you. It's been good to get to know you and become friends and and watch your journey and it's inspiring for me and, and many others. So uh, thanks again, Kelly. It's great to be with you. All right. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.